Okay, better. So again, there were, there were very many questions, and I grouped uh, several of them together, you know, around some central themes. Sometimes as I read the various questions, you may not exactly see what they have in common. Uh, I might not either, but... <laughs> <laughs> In first reading, they seem to go together. <laughs> okay, so this was the first group. It is my impression that when you speak of having faith, you are not talking about worshiping the Buddha or seeing him as a god, as some traditions seem to do. Will you clarify what you do mean by having faith? Can you further explain the phrase the Dharma protects those that protect the Dharma. Could you explain some of the rituals like bowing and chanting? Why do we pay homage to the enlightened one if there is no self? Isn't that affirming identity and encouraging compar comparison? And how is taking refuge in different how is taking refuge different from clinging and or attachment? So I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about <coughs> what faith means in the context of the Buddhist tradition and in the context of our meditation practice. Because as we know, in this country, in the West, and maybe around the world in different places, the word faith can mean so many different things, you know, and it can mean belief in a dogma. It can be a belief based on what we hear, you know, or what somebody says, or some book. We have faith in that. For myself, when I reflect on what faith means for me in this practice, it's really faith in the lawfulness of phenomena, which is another expression or a meaning of the term dharma. Dharma means law. It means that things are happening in our lives lawfully. And now when we understand this lawful process, we can live in alignment with it. We can live in harmony with it. When we don't understand it, then we're at odds and we're often in conflict. So faith in this sense is not very different than the faith we might have in the law of gravity. Does anybody not have faith in that? I mean, we just experience it daily as a basic law of existence. Things work in a certain way. And when we understand how they work, then we're not at odds, we're not in struggle with that lawfulness. And as we've talked before, and I think um, we'll be talking again in the next weeks, one of the most basic laws to come into harmony with is the law of karma. It's the understanding that our actions have consequences. 
And when we understand this, and when we understand that when we act based on greed, hatred, delusion, it has the results of suffering. When we act based on generosity, love, kindness, wisdom, it brings happiness. So this is one of the basic laws the Buddha expressed. We can, to at least some extent, check that out in our lives. And this is where the great hook of the Dharma operates. Because once we have some sense of this, what are you going to do? Go be more greedy. (laughs) Yeah, really fill yourself with hatred. It doesn't make sense. Once we understand the mind and see for ourselves, this is not a question of blind belief. This is a question of investigating for ourselves what are the consequences of these different mind states? What brings happiness? What brings suffering? And so when we see that, then we have faith in the Dharma. You know, and that's what the faith is about. It's not faith in some supernatural being, or it's just faith in how things work. You could say faith in the truth. So when we pay respects to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, or take refuge, really what we're doing is acknowledging our faith in the lawfulness of phenomena. We're acknowledging, yes, the mind has the potential to awaken. You know, when we come in and we bow to the Buddha, and people bow in various ways, and or not, you know, just sit. We're not, we're not bowing to a statue, as some people might think, you know, from the outside. It's just a representation of a possibility. It's a representation of understanding, you know, and we're acknowledging or we're respecting, yes, there is a lawfulness. There is a possibility of awakening, and we're acknowledging that. We're paying respect to that. So that's that's how I understand what faith means in this in this tradition. So what were the three most valuable things you learned from practicing with Sayadaw Upandita? One often hears the teachers describe extreme or heroic practices, which are then not recommended. (laughs) (laughs) However, these extreme practices seem to give momentum for getting back to balance and have been part of the practice life of some of our most successful meditators. In my own life, the more extreme things often lead to the greatest openings, confusion. What is right effort? How do you deepen your practice? Or how does one deepen one's practice? So, the most valuable things I learned from practicing with Sayadaw Upandita, I think at the top of the list must be an expanded sense of what right effort means. 
because he's definitely of the warrior school. And I'm, by temperament, of the comfort school. <laughs> and my practice had gotten quite comfortable, you know, after the initial struggles, which everybody has, but I had been practicing long enough. So I was just kind of cruising along and enjoying it. It seemed to be going well. And then I met Saida Pandita. <laughs> and he so encourages, and it's his style, and it's not a style that suits everybody, but for me at that time, it was very helpful. He really pushed. You know, he, he pushed the yogis to make efforts that went way beyond my comfort zone. I mean, the schedule that he laid out for us was basically you should be spending 14 hours a day sitting and walking. Well, you think uh, 24 hours a day, that leaves 10 hours, and so, you know, seven hours for sleep, and that's you know, generous. That leaves still enough hours for eating and other things. Not so easy to rack up those 14 hours. You know, when you really are keeping track, It used to annoy me no end at the end of the retreat when I found that some of my colleagues were counting the Dharma talks as one of their hours. <laughs> it had never occurred to me. <laughs> so again, you know, he, he, he had this very high bar Another aspect of how he worked, which was very demanding, uh, he emphasized, you know, to a very high extent, the quality of precision, precision of reporting. So we would have to go in and really report in quite an accurate way. You know, we felt the breath, the rising, falling. What actually did we feel? Not just that we were with it, but what was felt in it. You know, the pressure, the expansion, the tightness, what is felt in the falling. I spent weeks doing walking meditation, because we would have to report in that way about the walking as well. You know, so I could feel pretty well what I felt in the lifting and then in the coming down. But in the moving forward, you know, that movement through the air, I knew I was moving but I could not figure out how I knew I was moving. You know, what it was that I was actually feeling in that movement. And maybe you're better at this than I am, and so know, you know, right away, but it took me weeks to, oh, that's what that sensation is. So that's the kind of precision, you know, that he was asking for and inspired, you know, in the practice. The caution in this, and this is, I think, one of the great challenges for everybody on the spiritual path, 
is to find out for oneself, to experiment for oneself, how we can be at the forward edge of effort without forcing. Because it's very easy, especially if people have the tendency, which probably none of you have, but the tendency toward self-judgment. <laughs> I mean, this can be a setup, you know, for self-judgment and feeling we're not doing it well enough and we're not good yogis and just all of that. So it's a very delicate undertaking just to explore each one of us in our own way. It's not going to look the same for each one of us. You know, but what does it mean just to extend past our comfort zone in practice? Just to push those edges, to push those boundaries a little bit, but without forcing, without going to the self-judgment, out of interest. It's just that sense we're in this amazing environment now where all you have to do is explore awareness. That's your only job. So what a gift. I mean, you don't have any other responsibilities. It's an amazing gift you've given to yourself, you know, to, to have this time. Your only job is to see, to explore, okay, what is the nature of awareness? Where do I get lost? How do I get lost? How can I extend you know, the edges, the boundaries of what I'm comfortable with? So this takes a lot of delicacy. We have to watch and see, okay, can I push here a little bit? No, oh, that's a little too much. I need to sit back. I need to relax. You know, if I'm, if I'm getting too uptight in trying to be precise, then the move is to open up, you know, and to settle back and to relax. So there's not any one prescription, but it is useful to energize this quality of interest. And we're really interested in what's happening. There was, there was one retreat I was on in Burma. I was very fired up to practice. And I remember having the feeling I did not want to waste a single moment. And, it was, and my practice has not always been like that. And there are times when I haven't had that you know, intensity of interest. But it was interesting to experience it at that time to see, oh, yeah, that's possible. You know, I think probably in part, at least because it was in Burma and it was you know, hard to get there and required a lot. So I wanted to make the best use of the time. That's the quality. You know, that I really learned from Saida, to, to arouse this, you would say, the fire of passionate interest in awareness, in understanding our minds, in understanding our lives. Just as a little anecdote, and, and the dangers of cross-cultural communication. This is when Saida was here, and a lot of us were practicing with him, and practicing very hard, you know, trying to do that 14 hours a day, and not sleeping much, and you know, we were really pushing ourselves. 
And then at the end of every interview, he would say, try harder. <laughs> and here we are killing ourselves. <laughs> try harder. So some of us just let that go in and out. <laughs> some of us went completely neurotic around it, you know, and, and caused a lot of self-judgment. You know, how can I try hard? I'm doing my best. It turns out that the translator, that what was actually said in Burmese was, please continue. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't find this out till years later, <laughs> after being driven crazy by try harder. <laughs> so again, this, this whole question of right effort is a very delicate matter. And we just need to explore how can we do it in balance? You know, when do we push? When do we settle back? When do we aim for more precision? When do we open up? So it's all, it's all an exploration. To whom do we send metta if nobody is there? <laughs> Doesn't the practice enforce, reinforce a sense of me or something which receives metta? Do you have a definition of love that is a useful conceptual frame in your practice? The deeper I get into my meditation practice, becoming non-attached, having non-desire, etc., the more isolated this path seems to feel. Why? I think you said compassion is the expression of emptiness. Can you explain that? Okay, so this really has to do with understanding the quality of metta, how it's cultivated in our practice, both in the metta practice and in vipassana, and the relationship of metta to insight, to the insight of selflessness. A very useful framework for understanding not only the Buddha's teachings, but also understanding the application of them in our lives is the framework of what are called the two truths, relative truth and ultimate truth. And we operate on both of those levels. But just as an example, you, know, you look at this, and what do we see? We see a bell, and it's solid, and we strike it, and there's a sound that comes out, so we're using it, it's functional. So we're relating to it as a bell, and this is just the ordinary, conventional, relative understanding of our lives. If we looked at this under a high-powered microscope, bell would disappear. And I've never looked at it under a high-powered microscope, so I don't know what we'd see. But it wouldn't be bell. You know, if we could look deeply enough with a high enough, you know, maybe you know, on a microscopic level or a subatomic particle level, it's a, whole, it's a whole different level of reality. 
But that reality is not separate from Bell. The relative and what we could call more ultimate levels are a union. It's not that the ultimate level here and Bell is here. It's the same, the same reality seen from different levels. So this is very important. Because if we separate the two, then we get into all kinds of uh, spiritual disengagement from our lives. You know, it begins, oh yes, I'm cultivating emptiness because that's the ultimate, and the conventional is just something inferior over here. No, it's a union. We're operating on both levels, and we need to operate skillfully on both levels. So when we cultivate metta in the form of wishing well to ourselves, wishing well to others, this feeling of goodwill, goodwill to ourselves, goodwill to others, that is on the relative level. We are using the concept of self, of I, of other, of being. Those are the terms, those are the concepts that are appropriate and meaningful on the relative level. So there's no problem. May I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be free of enmity, may you. So this is a level we operate on, and for the most part we operate on this level most of the time. In the practice of vipassana, we begin to give ourselves access to another level of experience, the more ultimate level where the concepts disappear, the solidity of things disappear, bell disappears, self disappears, Joseph disappears, and we begin to experience, as Sally was talking about last night, we experience what we call self on the relative level as the play of aggregates, changing, arising, and passing in each moment where there's no solidity. On that level, to use the conventional phrases of metta doesn't make sense. It's the wrong level. We wouldn't say, may the perception aggregate be happy. You know, may Vedana be happy. I remember we'd like Vedana to be happy. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a misuse, you know, of those concepts. It's on the wrong level. But then the interesting question arises, what's the relationship of the two? How does our understanding of emptiness, emptiness of self, the more ultimate level, how does that inform our life on the relative level, where we're mostly living? And here's where it gets very interesting. Through the practice of meditation and deepening insight into the selfless nature of this process, that it is just the aggregates arising and passing, this empty phenomena rolling on, as we loosen 
our attachment to the view of self, and even more important, we loosen our attachment to the felt sense of self, then we're not defending anything. We don't have to live defensively. We begin to see there's not a self here that needs to be gratified or protected or defended or aggrandized through seeing the emptiness of self, the feeling of metta, the feeling of goodwill arises naturally because there's not a separation which is occurring on this level of self and other. This was expressed beautifully by one of the great Tibetan meditation masters, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He said, when you realize the empty nature of phenomena, the selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. I had a, I had a uh, powerful moment of what I would call transformative understanding on one retreat I was doing uh, with, with a Tibetan teacher, his name was Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, and he was giving talks on bodhijitta. And bodhijitta is the term, literally it means awakened mind or awakened heart. And it refers on the relative level to compassion and on the more ultimate level to the wisdom of emptiness. And I had read and heard for years about the bodhisattva vows and you know, these vows of compassion to help liberate all beings. And they were very inspiring, but it felt completely out of range. How in the world could I ever liberate all beings? Yeah, it was a nice idea, but it just seemed I couldn't connect with the actuality of it and, and what it could even mean. But as Nyosho Ken Rinpoche was talking about bodhicitta, something shifted in my mind. And as he was teaching, I began to understand that compassion is the activity of emptiness. Compassion is the manifestation of selflessness. And so when we are abiding, hopefully increasingly, you know, in that understanding of emptiness of self, we begin to see that that understanding naturally manifests as love and compassion. And so then the bodhisattva vows took on a whole different meaning. It's not that, and they never could, rest on the shoulders of a self. It doesn't make sense. How could a self ever liberate all beings? But when we understand that the expression of 
emptiness is compassion, then it's, then it's the Dharma saving all beings. It's emptiness saving all beings. It's compassion saving all beings without reference to any one doing it. And that opened the, the whole possibility of a life dedicated to that. Did that seem clear to you? Because it was so, it was so powerful for me to take it off of the shoulders of self and to see that it's the wisdom of emptiness manifests. The energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. The deeper our wisdom of selflessness, of emptiness. And so this is how metta which is expressed on the relative level, and emptiness, which is the wisdom of the ultimate level, where their interface is. It becomes a union. It's not two different things. Okay. When I really start to see clearly the truth of the Dhamma, the three marks of existence, four noble truths, etc., the things that I thought were most important and meaningful, family, husband, children, career, seem less important, almost empty. But I'm not ready to give up my life. So how do we balance practice and truth with a lay life? Basically, how can I hold both the ultimate truth of the Dhamma and the mundane realities of day-to-day life? An important question. I am a relatively young person. I often worry about how to relate to many of the things we are renouncing here, such as the arts, current affairs, and romance. When the retreat ends, the things we are renouncing here when the retreat ends. Do you have any advice on how to be a lay Buddhist in a modern Western culture? Joseph, not much has been said about human sexuality. How does it fit in with the teaching? Can making love be done mindfully? (laughs) It seems that sex is driven by desire. Therefore, can it ever be wholesome or wisdom-filled? or perhaps only when the motivation is procreation. So these are important questions for everyone. There's often a misunderstanding of the teachings that in order to be free, we have to renounce pleasant experience. That is a complete misunderstanding. First of all, it's impossible. We're living in a sense world. And as we all know, our life experience is made up of pleasant things, of unpleasant things, some neutral things. And even if we wanted to, renounce pleasure. What would that mean? Are you going to go around with your eyes closed and your ears closed and your body in a suit of armor? So it's, 
it's a completely mistaken view of what it is that we're practicing. The nature of freedom is not about renouncing the pleasant. The nature of freedom is renouncing or letting go of attachment to the pleasant. Now, these are two very different things. And it's interesting, even in English, there are a couple of words that often get confused. And I think it's important to understand the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Because in English, the word detachment, and people often associate that with the Buddhist teachings. You know, you have to become detached. But in English, the connotation of detachment is a kind of withdrawal, you know, just a pulling back from experience. Whereas non-attachment suggests being right there in experience without holding on. So that's quite different than detachment. Okay, so this is kind of the, the framework of understanding. The Buddha taught to a wide range of people. He taught to lay men and women. He taught to monks. He taught nuns. And the teachings varied according to whom he was teaching. And so when we think about renunciation, renunciation of attachment, the level or practice of renunciation will be different whether we're leading a lay life or a monastic life. Like the monastics have, I don't know, some hundreds of rules, right, which are basically about renunciation. For lay people, and the Buddha acknowledges, and he, he taught for lay people, realized in our worldly life, we are not going to be living the life of a monastic renunciate. And so there are sense, pleasure, enjoyments that are perfectly allowable and, I was going to say, expected, or it's just part of a natural lay life. What the Buddha did was to point out, as we're engaged, as we're living the life, you know, whether, whether it's of sexual pleasure or food or any other aesthetic pleasure, as lay people, the guidelines are to be able to enjoy those pleasures within certain limits. And the limits being where we're not causing harm to ourselves or others. And these are the basic moral precepts that we undertake. So it's a framework. And it's interesting just to consider the difference, you know, when you hear the words 
I'll just try this on for size. Uh, when you hear the phrase of the words, uh, making love and lust. And in my mind, it conjures up two very different things. Although sometimes <laughs> they get conflated. But the renunciation that might be appropriate for a layperson is the renunciation, we could say, of addictive lust, where we're driven by sexual desire, which, as we know, can be so powerful, you know, and often drives people's lives. Well, for a monk or nun, they're renouncing it altogether, the, act, the acting on it. For lay people, it's not renouncing the expression of that energy, but it is creating certain limits of, is this skillful? Is this leading to harmony? Is it an expression of love? Or are we being driven you know, by an addictive quality of lust? So we need to see that that becomes our practice. It's very interesting on retreat where we are living temporarily, similar to monks and nuns, you know, this is, this is like a temporary monastery. Very interesting to explore what we can learn about sexual desire in the context of a retreat where we're not giving expression to it. Because I'm sure that simply by being here, it hasn't meant that you haven't felt any desire. You know, the desire arises in the mind, regardless of our environment. So the question is, what can we learn about that energy which will serve us in the context of our lay life, where we do give expression to it? And it's been very interesting for me, and I think for anybody, really looking at their minds and this energy. So just a few examples. and arenas of investigation. There's one kind of desire that arises in the mind as fantasies. You know, and sexual fantasies, they are very seductive. You know, you're sitting here and you look so peaceful. (laughs) uh, Who knows what's going on inside? (laughs) So how do we relate, you know, when, there, when there's a sexual fantasy that's arising in the mind that's so seductive and we get pulled into it, that's a chance to see, can we be mindful of it? Can we be aware of it and learn not to be identified with it? You know, and we can, we can play with a lot of different skillful means to do this. So just to mention a few that, that I found useful, and you'll find your own. In those periods of my practice where this was arising a lot, you know, so this fantasy would arise in my mind, and maybe one that I had gone through you know, a hundred times already. So I started putting up a sign in my mind, dead end. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I knew this isn't going anyplace. It's just, I'll go down this road, and it's just a dead end, and I'm back to the breath. You know, so after being down that dead end so many times, I decided to put the dead end sign up right at the beginning to remind myself this is not going anyplace. And it helped. It helped free the mind from being seduced by something that I could see is not serving any purpose. So that was one little tool I used. Another tool that I found very helpful, and this goes to the precision aspect of the practice, when these fantasies were arising, I would be noting pleasant, pleasant, and sometimes I'd be noting seeing, you know, if it was visual images, seeing, pleasant, but it didn't do it. You know, I, I would note it, but it's like the note didn't get where the real hook was for me. And then just in being interested in this and seeing, okay, well, how is my mind getting so caught in these fantasies again and again and again? And reflecting a little bit on the law of dependent origination, you know, and the links, as you probably know, start with contact, then feeling, then desire or craving. So the contact is the first contact with the image. That's the contact. And then there's the feeling tone to it. It's pleasant. So what I started doing is make, making a double note. I would, every time that, that image would arise, I would note contact feeling, contact pleasant, contact pleasant. And it was amazing, just the addition of that little bit of mindfulness acknowledging contact with the image, pleasant. It was like hitting the right acupuncture point. You know, it's, and the identification with it released, it just washed through. So I'm just using these as a few examples. You, you want to explore when the mind is caught up in this kind of desire. This, this is really worth looking at because if we don't have the freedom here, to see how they arise and have some choice about whether we follow the fantasy or not, then we're not going to have much freedom of choice out in the world as the fantasies arise. We'll be much more inclined just to act, at least act when we can, whether appropriate or not. So there's a lot to learn here about the nature of desire in the mind. Another powerful arena for me in this area was not so much the fantasies that arose in the mind, but the feeling that sometimes happens in meditation, especially as our practice has opened a bit and the energy in our bodies is flowing, Sometimes what happens is there's there's rushes of sexual energy, you know, that happen in the body and can be sitting. And these tremendous rushes, and they're very enjoyable. So it's interesting, over years of practice and just watching this phenomena and watching my changing relationship to it, at first, I was thrilled. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) 
Now I know why people like to meditate. <laughs> you know, because it's like this, this blissful sexual energy filling the body. So for a while, you know, I was just really sinking into it and even encouraging it. <laughs> but after some time, again, realizing this is just not going anyplace. It's very enjoyable, but it's not serving the practice. It's not serving freedom. It's not serving peace. You know, but needed to go through it to actually realize that for myself. But then I went through another phase Whenever that energy started to arise, I'd like, oh, just don't bother me. You know, and I would kind of be just pushing it away and didn't want to have to deal with it. You know? So then that was a whole phase of kind of resistance or aversion to it, you know, because it felt like it was disturbing the meditation. It took some time to realize that's not it either. And finally it came to the place really of equanimity. These feelings would come up. It was fine. My mind wasn't drawn to them. It wasn't pushing them away. There was just this openness, impartiality. And then that energy came and went. It was not a disturbance. It was just another part of the passing shower. So I say all this because this is a powerful energy. You know, it's arises in our meditation practice, and obviously it arises very powerfully in our lives. We need to understand it. We need to come into a wise and skillful relationship to it. You know, and as lay people, we can express it, you know, and we can enjoy that domain of relationships. But can we bring wisdom to it? So you can just extrapolate from this particular example. I've I've emphasized, you know, the relationship to sexual energy, but it really has to do with all the other pleasures of the senses that we enjoy in the world. There's nothing wrong in the enjoyment of them. But are we enjoying them wisely? Or are they becoming a source of suffering? And that's our challenge as lay practitioners. We have to be very awake, you know, in these domains. Tell us about fear. How do we free ourselves from fear? I am scared of getting old. I do not see how one could not have this fear with all the aches and pains to come. I am not particularly attached to my body or life right now. I could take it or leave it, but I am scared of all the extra stuff I will have to deal with in 30 years. I have recognized this as aversion, and I realize everyone, everyone must age, but that doesn't help the fears. Any suggestions? In my own mind, fear leads to many things depending on the situation. Fear may lead to clinging or aversion. Sometimes it leads to thinking, planning, and or to delusion. Sometimes it just hangs around as a seeming response to the uncontrollability of the world. How do we free ourselves? So as I talked last week, you know, fear is a very 
deeply conditioned force in the mind. So we need to learn how to relate to it in a skillful way so that it doesn't debilitate our lives. And it's kind of interesting in the the first question, you know, which really, the second one about anticipated fear. Very interesting to notice how often our fears are about fears that are not here in the moment, but are things that we imagine will happen. So I'll just back up a bit. The primary way of working with fear, and this I mentioned in the talk last week, the primary way, and we need to practice this, is to become accepting of the feeling itself. That mostly fear is such a problem in our lives because we're so resistant to feeling that emotion. It's very painful. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. And so we'll do all kinds of things not to feel fear. Our practice is to learn to get okay. It is okay to feel it. It's uncomfortable. Just like feeling a pain in the knee or the back is uncomfortable, unpleasant, but it's okay. We can make space for it. We can open to it. We can work the same way with the unpleasantness of this particular emotion. And the little mantra, it's okay. It's okay. Let me feel it. It's okay. We coach ourselves. We remind ourselves to soften, to allow. What's so interesting in this practice and in life is that in the things we resist, we are feeding them by the resistance. So we think that, okay, if I resist the fear and try to keep it out, that'll be some kind of safety or refuge or we'll be okay. And actually the resistance to the fear is exactly what's strengthening it. We're giving it energy. So it's not an effective strategy for working with it. It's counterproductive. But we can hear this. You need to, you need to discover this for yourself. Right? To really, as fear arises, this is okay. Let me feel it. And then we begin to see, yes, it's another passing emotion. It arises. It's a mind state. It's there. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. And it passes. So this is the foundation. As was mentioned, when we are not accepting of fear, it drives us to so many other mind states and emotions and actions. I can't remember whether I mentioned this story here or not. about teaching at a uh, retreat for lawyers, and um, it was for lawyers and law students and law professors, and teaching mindfulness. And one of the discussion groups, a second-year law student, just said something very interesting, because they were talking about the very adversarial nature you know, of that profession, and 
with a lot of intense emotion and it's, you know, it's, it's intense. And he was saying in the group that he had to get angry in these confrontations in order not to feel the fear. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, the notion in his mind was that if he felt the fear, it would be weakening. That somehow he would be giving up a strength. And so that in order not to feel the fear, you know, it, it got expressed or vented as anger. It's a mistaken notion. Actually, the acceptance of the fear provides a tremendous strength because we're not, we're not putting all this energy into resistance. We can just allow ourselves to feel it and then act appropriately. There's, there's a little statement by the great artist Georgia O'Keeffe which expresses what it's like when we can accept fear. She said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. You know, we have the notion, the notion that fear necessarily limits us. It does not need to limit us. If we are accepting of the emotion like we would accept sadness or anger or joy, it's just another mindset. If we can get accepting of it, we can act right in the midst of fear. We can do whatever we think is appropriate to do. We can take appropriate action. I had an experience of this. I was, I was with friends on Hawaii, on the island of Kauai. And there's this beautiful 11-mile hike on the north shore into the Kalalau Valley. And it's just up and down and up and down cliffs. And then we, we camped for a week in that remote valley. And there were cliffs, you know, high cliffs. And one of the friends I was with grew up in Hawaii. And he was just very familiar you know, with climbing the cliffs. I looked at the cliffs. <laughs> Where's the elevator? <laughs> I mean, it was daunting. You know, it's not like there was a path up. It was just, but, you know, I was a lot younger then, (laughs) and he was very enthusiastic. And so I just went along. Like George O'Keefe, I was really terrified the whole way up. And it didn't matter. You know, I saw, and it it was just a great lesson for me in seeing, yeah, the fear is here, even the terror is here, and I can still do what I want to do. So that was very liberating that we don't have to be limited by this feeling if we're willing to accept the feeling. So that's the basic foundation of working with fear and freeing ourselves from it. One other little piece about this projection of fear about future events. There's been a lot of research neuroscience research and psychological testing research about the nature of happiness and people's belief about happiness. And the conclusion from this research, and I'll just read from this, 
Studies have shown that we systematically overestimate the degree to which good and bad experiences will affect us. Changes in wealth, health, age, marital status, etc., tend not to matter as much as they think they will. And yet we make our most important decisions in life based on these inaccurate assumptions. So that's very interesting, especially with regard to fear. We're looking ahead, we may be anticipating all these things, thinking that it's going to have a major material effect on our lives, and it turns out that it doesn't. And there was further research, and this is brain, brain neuroscience research, that it seems we each have a set point, you know, a happiness set point. And even when very good things happen, you know, we feel elated, we quickly come back to the set point. Or very bad things happen. You know, we've, we're upset by it and, and maybe suffer a bit, but again, we quickly come back to our set point. So our fears about what might happen affecting our happiness are not very accurate. Now, the very good news. Mostly, the researchers had thought that the set point in people is fixed. You know, that just through our conditioning and our birth, we each have our set point and that's it for life. What they found through meditation research, the research on meditators, is that the set point changes. And that actually through meditation, we set a higher, there's a higher set point of happiness. And the more we meditate, the higher that set point becomes. So meditate away. (laughs) (laughs) So knowing this, I I just felt so many of our fears, they do come up and a lot anticipated. But we have to kind of understand the actual process of our lives. You know, and what are the cause of happiness and not be deluded into thinking that some of these things which we may be fearing, not to be thinking that they matter very much when they end up not mattering very much. And that it has much more to do with that set point of understanding and metta and compassion. These are the qualities that we can set in our hearts and minds. So there were many more, but this might be a good place to end. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.